Moses, then you know God's about to use Moses in incredible ways, ultimately to redeem his people, the Israelite nation, out of slavery. But we see it start really rough because um, when, when Moses is born, all baby boys have been commanded by all of Pharaoh's, not just ranking officials, but everyone, every Egyptian that, that is there, they're commanded, if you see a baby boy, throw him in the Nile. The Pharaoh was afraid of the Israelites blessing and growing from God and that they would be outnumbered and that they would eventually rebel against, against them. And so they put them into slavery. They try to kill all these baby boys. However, we see um, Moses' mother saves him through a series of events that I will never be able to read simply again in my life because of my very poor wording. Um, but but uh, Moses' mom does an incredible thing um, puts him in this basket and floats him in the Nile, um, trying to save him. And then, and then who should find him but Pharaoh's daughter? Pharaoh's daughter, of all people, should know what the decree is, that, that when she finds Moses, she should essentially just tip the basket over and walk away. God puts compassion in her heart, and, and she not only doesn't do that, but she eventually adopts him into her own home to raise him as, his, as her own son. And so you already can kind of see, man, God's at work despite what's going on in the culture around them. And now we're going to, well, let's just read 11 to 24. There's a big chunk of time missing, and I'll explain that uh, after we read this. But this is chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Uh, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian And hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their, flo- their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruiel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. We're going to stop there, and we're going to explore this a little bit, and then we'll talk about the first, three, or first six verses of chapter 3. There's a question of timeline, and and we already had that conversation back at the beginning of Exodus 1, because as Genesis ends, things are great. 
and then things go real bad, real fast, and you're kind of wondering uh, how many years has passed, and how is there a new Pharaoh that doesn't know of Joseph? And so we talked about all those things, and if you missed that, you can go online and, and catch up. But in the life of Moses, scholars uh, look at it basically in three blocks of 40. That the first 40 years of Moses' life are spent in Egypt, the vast majority of those being raised as kind of the prince of Egypt, this, this uh, well-to-do, well-educated, well-respected uh, individual. And then you have this next section of time here in verse 11. So basically 40 years has passed, and then you have this next section. And Moses flees to Midian. He's going to spend 40 years in Midian, and then he's going to go back to Egypt and spend another 40 years there. And then he's going to die at 120 years old. Now, here's the thing. Scholars can say that all they want, but if they don't have proof, then how helpful is that? So I just want to give you just a real quick example of how to read the scriptures as a whole. If you have a study Bible, your Bible's done a lot of this work for you already. And so if you don't have one, this is a really helpful tool to get. There'll be little kind of markers on the side with little verses and cross-references pointing you certain places. And sometimes underneath in specific verses, they'll mention these things. And in mine, it says, man, you got to flip to Acts chapter 7. So let's flip to Acts chapter 7. This is a long time later, but here we have the story of all of this playing out for us very, very clearly. If you remember in Acts, um, Stephen is one of kind of the the disciples, and he's very well spoken of. Um, He gets brought before some some people, uh, accusing them of some things, and and basically he gives this big speech in chapter 7, one of probably the most significant and clear representations of the gospel as a whole. So if if you're ever thinking, man, like, I really don't know how I'm going to share the gospel, read through chapter 7, and you'll get a real, real good sense. Stephen says that Jesus is the Messiah who was to come, and, and ultimately he becomes kind of the first martyr of the church for it. But as he's explaining uh, this story, you'll kind of see, in, if we start in verse 22 of chapter 7, Stephen is talking, and he says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was how old? Forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, which is the exact passage that we just read. And then if you kind of move to verse 30, he continues on his life, and he says, Now when forty years had passed, an angel uh, appeared to him in the wilderness, which is the, the burning bush, which is a, what we're about to look at in chapter 3. So when you kind of see this little bit of Midian, that's 40 years where not much is really explained about Moses, other than he's out there. But Stephen is laying this very clear for us. And then in 36, he says, This man, Moses, led them out of Egypt, that is, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. And then in Deuteronomy 31, it talks about how Moses, and we'll, we'll deal with the specifics of this, but Moses isn't permitted to go into the promised land. And Moses dies at an age of 120 years old, which you might go, man, that's crazy. How could someone kind of accomplish all he did and live that long? But if you read Deuteronomy 31, you see that the whole point of that is it's God's miraculous hand at work and that it never should have happened, but God was at work in him. So I say all this to you because when you, when you start reading through Scripture in a way where you can 
kind of make these notes and see, man, the Bible does speak to these things. And it's not just as though some, some kind of nerdy people are sitting there and they're going back into the context and going, well, according to history, this is what's most probable. There is some of that because a lot of history isn't completely written down for us. But there's lots in Scripture where you can look way ahead from, from Exodus all the way to Acts and you can see, man, this is spelled out for us so plainly and so clearly. And I say this all the time, but my goal, uh, as a pastor, is, is not ever to be like, here's 10 ways for a better life. My goal is that you would get passionate about Scripture and that you would learn how to read through it and how to understand it. So that when you're sitting there and having your devotions, that you see something like this and you go, man, there's, there's a pattern here. There's something unique here. I got I to read ahead. I got to look ahead to this other book or there's another place in here that talked about the same thing. And, and as we learn to do that, we'll be far kind of more competent, more educated, more able to read and to discern what Scripture says. And, and that, that's what my goal is. We're going to see that in uh, verse 15. And maybe, maybe you saw this is the last half of 15, right? Moses flees from Pharaoh and stays in the land of Midian. And then it says, and he sat down by a well. Does that seem strange to you? Well, when we get there, you're going to see that that's not actually strange, that that's actually a pattern that's all through Genesis, and gets there, and it should make our minds go, oh, hold on. But before we get there. Um, oh, I do want to clarify one more thing, because this has come up, and I want to clarify this, because it's very difficult for our modern minds, and our, the way we communicate now, to grasp some of these things. But if you read through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you'll see so many specific numbers that are very perfectly round numbers. 40 gets used a lot, 7 gets used a lot, 10 gets used a lot. In the New Testament, 12 is going to get used a lot. And, and the more you kind of see this, the more skeptical you might be going, come on, like really, was it that, like, perfect? Well, the easy answer is no. And that might sound terribly sacrilegious. But the point is this, is, and this isn't just our Hebrew kind of Old Testament writings. This is kind of all ancient cultures in that day. If you read any of the other ancient documents that exist uh, from back then, is numbers were not something to be used as a precision technique of communication. They were meant to be a general uh, technique of communication to communicate a general truth or a general principle. And we don't like that. And so when we read kind of the genealogies of all these people and how long they lived, and, and it comes to one number and we go... Well, that's awfully coincidental. So, well, that's not the point. So like if I, you know, this July I'll turn uh, 40, and, and let's say a week before that happens and I say that I'm 40 years old, you may want to, in your modern mindset of precision, go, that's not true yet. you got seven more days. Or you can understand that I'm making a point. And the Old Testament especially does this a lot, but in that ancient culture, their, their way of doing that, there's a lot more liberty in, in using round numbers as a whole to communicate something. And so when you see these round numbers, you are supposed to notice them and go, hang on, that's there for a reason. So how can I trace this pattern? So what, what can you think of with 40 as the example? 40, day, or 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days in the desert for Jesus. Flood, how long did it rain? 40 days. 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus appears. You can see these patterns coming everywhere, and, and they're trying to communicate things to us that, that, that we should pay attention and see what's happening. And uh, one of my 
probably two seminary classes ago, three seminary classes ago, we got into this idea of Hebrew numerology, and my brain was blown, and I didn't know how to deal with that stuff. It's just too complex, and sometimes I think we can probably get too much, too focused into that. But the point being is that we, we, not, we need not look at them with our modern mindset. If it says 40 days it rained, and it rained 41 days, that's how, that somehow undermines the Bible. When that's not what the Bible's trying to communicate. And so we just need to, we do this with each other all the time. We think exaggerating is, is completely okay, you know, as long as it's reasonable, um, in our daily communication. But then we have this idea that once it's written down, that's a different thing. And we just have to remember, it's different cultures at different times. So I hope that's helpful for those of you that kind of asked that question, just to kind of think of it in those, uh, in that light. Happy to have that conversation further if you want. Uh, verse 11, okay, so when Moses grows up, now this is really interesting. Notice how the narrator puts this. He went out to who? His people. And looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, comma, one of his people. What are we being reminded of? There's a reality here that Moses understands he's not an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew, but he's being raised as an Egyptian. I'm pretty sure by the time he's 40 years old, he can look back and realize that there's no Hebrew kids around his age. How much of the story has been told to him, that that part isn't clear. But what is clear is he's a Hebrew living as an Egyptian, but recognizing his Hebrewness. And he sees an Egyptian beating this Hebrew person or these Hebrew people, and and he doesn't like it. And so he takes matters into his own hands, and he's going to deal with it. And so Stuart Douglas notes this. This is really important. He says, this was his first attempt at delivering his people, acting alone and in secret and relying on his own strength and wisdom. God is yet to call Moses to tell him what he's going to accomplish. But Moses goes, man, I don't like what I see and I'm going to deal with this. Me and Randy have talked about this a few times in our, in our elders meetings recently, but there's something to do with God's timing and our timing, and we don't like God's timing. And we go, I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to push my agenda. And sometimes what God's calling us to do is wait and listen and be patient. God has purpose. God has plan. And so the crazy part of this is is God is going to use Moses to rescue his people, but it's going to be God that accomplishes that, not Moses. I think this is actually one of God's greatest blessings to us as people, that he doesn't let us accomplish things in our own efforts as much as he goes hang on let me take the credit for this let me accomplish this and that again that might sound egomaniacal in a sense only if you think of it as going God's trying to take credit from you but God's not trying to take credit from you he's trying to show the world that he alone is worthy of worship it's a mercy of his to show look don't follow don't follow me don't follow some, some preacher on TV who's very eloquent, who's very charismatic. Follow Jesus. And if I stray from the teaching, if I move off of what Scripture says into my own ideas, or, then you just, you just got to come smack me upside the head. Because we got to fix that. It's God who's at work. And, and as we've mentioned, as Phil mentioned, we're looking ahead to the future, recognizing that we have stewardship. But we're also looking ahead to the future going, last I checked, God's still in control. And God can still do crazy things. Now the key is, more often than not, God uses 
his crazy people to accomplish his crazy purposes. I mean that very generously to us all. But God calls us to do weird things. God calls us and, and other people and strangers, and, and we can share this again, is, is two years ago, right, right as COVID was kind of hitting, uh, we got a check from a, a donor that was done through a kind of a, a way of keeping it anonymous. And we were kind of sitting there going, oh, what are we going to do here? And all of a sudden, there's a check for $100,000. In the midst of all, COVID's about to hit. We're about to start getting real small. Giving's about to go down across the board. Right? God is sovereign. God is at work. God knows what he's doing. But God also has called us to, to be good stewards. The problem is that Moses was not yet listening to God and trying to accomplish it on his own. And so I just say that just so as a reminder of us. Maybe the first thing we ought to do always is pray. Slow down and ask, God, what are you, what are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you calling me to do in the midst of this before we act? And some of us, myself included, would way rather act than slow down and pray sometimes. So Moses goes out and he kills this Egyptian with this kind of plan. And you actually see this in Acts 7. I, I didn't read that whole passage, but uh, Stephen brings this out to us as well. Is, is Moses' goal is that the Hebrew people would see that Moses was trying to rescue them. But what do they see? Well, they see someone who might be by birth a Hebrew, but was raised an Egyptian. Essentially, he's the enemy. And so when Moses sees another fight taking place, he goes, he tries to break it up, and they go, well, who's made you prince and judge over us? There's a couple really interesting things in that. First of all, who is going to become judge over them in a sense? Moses. Moses is going to lead them and do incredible things through them but not yet. The other thing that's really interesting in here is, is kind of entering into Moses' reality. Hebrew, raised an Egyptian, knows he doesn't belong, tries to do something for the Hebrews so that they would see that he's part of their team, and they reject him. And then when he's rejected, it's found out that he killed an Egyptian, and then who rejects him next? The people that raised him. And Pharaoh seeks to kill Moses, and Moses flees from Pharaoh, and then he flees into the land of Midian. And so what we're supposed to see as we're reading this is, where does Moses belong? It's kind of an, in no man's land. See, God's going to do incredible things through Moses, but God's going to do incredible things through Moses despite the circumstances so that we see just how more miraculous all of this is because some, I mean this very politely, but sometimes we're not real smart. And we need very obvious things from God before we go, oh, I see what you're doing. Maybe I should say that only about me. You're all much smarter than me, I hope. But then we have this, okay, he flees to Midian and he sat down by a well. What's interesting? I've given you a few minutes to think about it. What's interesting about he sat down by a well? It's okay, we didn't read this yet. When we read, when we went through kind of our summary of Genesis leading to Exodus, we mostly talked about Joseph in the sense of context. But we very briefly talked about something. Um, there's God, the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What do you remember about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That as they went out from wherever God was calling them to these new, right, Abraham's called out of his people to go somewhere, and he goes and he sits down by a, that's correct, 
right? And then Abraham, Isaac. Isaac goes out to find a wife somewhere, and he doesn't, through his servant, albeit, but goes out to find a, a wife because they're kind of still wandering, and where does he sit down? And then where does Jacob sit down? You get the point. Moreover, also, you read here that Moses ends up saving the priests of, of or, sorry, the, the priest's daughters, the priest of Midian's daughters, um, because they went to go draw water, and they couldn't. What do you remember about Isaac and Jacob? It's essentially the same story happening, but some details are a little bit unique and different. And so when you see a strange little verse like this, this is again where your study Bible has done lots of good work for you, is you go and he sat down by a well. This is weird. Verse 15, and you look over here and you go, oh, hang on. This has happened several times. And then you can start to see, this is a sign of God going, Moses, sit down. I'm about to work here. I'm about to do some things. I'm about to show you that I'm sovereign and I am in control. And sometimes we can kind of miss those things as we just read the narrative of the story because we're just looking for kind of the main point. So again, these repeated patterns are really, really interesting. And, and, and I got to confess, like this is, in the last few years, this is kind of a new way for me to read scripture. So I was never really taught this until kind of seminary kind of level stuff where it was like, oh, this would have been helpful to know years ago. But for some reason, I, I don't know why, but churches kind of don't want to talk about those things, they want to just focus on 10 ways to be a better Christian. And again, my focus is very different for you guys, for our church as a whole. So Moses goes down, he, he kind of rescues these, these uh, seven daughters of the priest, and then they go off on their own. And then you have Rahuel, who, who, just to be real clear, in chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to read about someone named Jethro, same person, okay, different names, but same person, just so there's no confusion um, in that. Um, so Moses kind of saves them, and, and the dad goes, hang on, like, like bring, him, bring him here, um, that he may come and eat bread in their home. This was a sign of, of fellowship and thanksgiving. And so then you read in verse 21, Moses was content to dwell with the man. So he's coming to peace with the realities of not living as a Hebrew, not living as an Egyptian, now we're in Midian. But also it says he gives his... Um, Sorry, Rahuel gives Moses his daughter Zipporah as a wife. She gives birth to a son, and his son he names Gershom. Now, Gershom, if you translate it literally from uh, the Hebrew, means an alien there. That's what it means. So is Moses still very aware that he's kind of alone? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in Midian. I've been given a, a, a wife from, from this, this priest's daughters. This is good. Okay, you know, that's going well. But I know these are not my people. I know this is not where I belong. And so you can kind of see that even though things seem to be going okay from that sense, that Moses is still wrestling with that, where do I belong? Who am I? A sense of identity. So here's the thing. In our world today, I would argue that that's maybe one of the biggest problems that we face. Is that we really lack a sense of identity. If you're ever um, in a group of people, and uh, you're trying to size each other up and, you know, see kind of who's the most powerful in the group, or, you know, whatever it might be, is what's the first question you ask? What do you do so that we can do what? And kind of... How far on the pecking order do I fall here? How much money do they make? Or how important is their job? And so what are we tying identity to? Our accomplishments. 
what is the follower of Jesus supposed to tie their identity to? The reality that Jesus is our king. And all through the New Testament, you read and you, you learn that, man, these people, the, the followers of Jesus, they didn't care if they died. They didn't care if their possessions were taken because they understood that there was a mission to do and that was to bring glory to God that people might understand the gospel and who Jesus is and they were going to do it at all costs because they understood who they were and what their calling was. And I think this is something that we in the Christian church in our culture have really forgotten. Because what we accomplish, what we've worked for, how often do we say things like, man, you really deserve that. I hope that we usually say that in a good sense. But what does scripture actually teach us? What, what do we deserve? The wages of sin? Yeah. And so as we start to understand kind of where we fit, we can look at this and go, man, Moses is struggling with this. I struggle with this. This is not a new problem. Moses is going to learn, and he's going to see who God is and watch God at work. And, and my challenge to you is if you put down your sense of identity and you go, I'm going to follow after Jesus with my life, God's going to do amazing things through you too. Now, you might not rescue a nation out of slavery but it's not about the, the, the bigness of the event, but the faithfulness of what you've been called to. So what is God calling you to do? We're going to talk about this next week as we look at Moses' initial response. But ours is usually the same. When God says, Moses, I'm going to call you, he, he gives a whole bunch of reasons why he shouldn't do it. And what do we usually do when God calls us to something? I couldn't possibly. Right? You, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, would you, would you maybe consider helping with this ministry? No, nah, I can't do it. Why not? Do you serve a God who is able to equip you for what God's called you to do? The first thing you should do is go, hey, let me go home and pray about that and see if that's what God's calling me to do. That's the first thing all of us should do. But we're usually too reliant on going either, no, I don't have those skills, or yes, I do have those skills, I'll do that, rather than going, God, what are you calling me? So Moses lives in this foreign land, and then, and then the narrator steps out from the micro, back to, to, back to the macro, and looks and says, during those many days, so this is 40 years now, that's going, the people, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. Now here's the question, did God forget his covenant? Is that what they're saying? What's the point? God's about to act. Right? God, God is aware of the situation. And again, we talked about our timing versus God's timing. They've groaned. They've cried out. It's not like this is the first time in the 40 years that they've groaned and cried out. But in this moment, God hears, not because he ignored all the other ones, but because it was his, it was his sovereign time to act. And so it says, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God is fully aware of your struggles and my struggles. God knows what's going on in your life. And you might have cried out, God, free me from this, free me from this situation. And he, he may not be yet. Or he may not ever. But do we believe that God is still at work even when things aren't going the way that we expect? Well, here's the story of what we're going to see. Is that God has to, or chooses to rather, Take Moses down this very specific journey to get him to a place where he can go, I'm, I'm going to work now. 
And God's doing the same in our lives. So chapter 3, let's just read these six verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. He said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father. Notice that, we're going to talk about that. Your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at him. A couple of things in these verses that I just want to highlight. Right, Moses has left, right, the Egyptian, the Hebrew, he's living in Midian. Um, scholars actually point out that in verse 1, that Moses has abandoned entirely his Egyptian upbringing, and is living as a Hebrew. How could we make that assumption based on verse 1? Well, if you go back to Genesis 46, so again, this is where, if, if we've recently read and remembered the context, is in verse 34 of chapter 46, Joseph says this to his people when he brings them um, to get out of uh, the famine land. He says, tell, tell the Pharaoh this, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is what? An abomination to the Egyptians. So Moses grew up believing that shepherds were what? Now, obviously wrestled with that. My people here, these people that I'm living with here. But now he's living as a shepherd. And he's traveling as a shepherd. But the commentators also note that whose flock is Moses is watching? In the 40 years that he's had there, is he watching his own flock? So what does he have that's his? Not very much. And so he's kind of at the very bottom end of the totem pole here, as it were. And, and so we have, um, he's keeping this flock, but then notice this, he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Where's that? And we got a little footnote. Again, study Bible, super helpful. Mount Sinai. What does that sound familiar to yeah, the Ten Commandments. This is where, this is where, so sometimes we don't realize this, but Moses is out in Midian. Now he's kind of taking a little walk about with, his, with the shepherd, with the flock, sorry. And they've gone off, and now they've found themselves at this, mo- at this mountain where God is going to reveal himself to Moses, only to take him to go get the Hebrew people to bring them back where? To Sinai. So again, there's, there's these moments that, it says the mountain of God, and that, is not an improper translation, but if you look into the Hebrew word, and if you have a study Bible, it'll say, or could be called Mount Sinai, right? Depending on how you choose to, to translate that. And so what you have here is God is revealing himself here going, uh, Moses, I'm calling you to something. And I'm actually going to call all the people back here. God, God is very much at work. So he appears to him how? In a flame, fire. 
How is God going to appear at the tabernacle to his people? Fire coming down. How does he appear? Well, we should go backwards a little. Sorry. How does he appear at Mount Sinai on the mountain? Cloud and fire. How does God appear in the temple when they build the temple? Fire. New Testament. How does God appear in a unique way in Acts chapter 2? Tongues of fire coming down and resting on everyone. There's just, there's so many things that you can look at and see. This is God's presence here in this moment trying to communicate something to us. And, and sometimes maybe we don't see these things. But the more we study scripture and the more we see these patterns, the more we see these unique moments. And, and so God calls to Moses. Moses. He says his name. And there's an assumption in the Hebrew culture here that to say someone's name twice means that it was, it was a friendly, uh, kind of like an I love you type of greeting. It's Moses, Moses. And Moses responds, here I am. God's about to call Moses into partnership in a very unique way. But what's interesting here is as Moses turns aside to go and see the bush, When God calls him, what does he then say to him in verse 5? Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is really... um, I want to read to you something from Tozer, because Tozer is someone who A.W. Tozer studied and wrote a lot about God's holiness. And here's what he notes about God's holiness. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. See, God is looking at Moses and he says, hold on. You can't come any closer. I'm a holy God. Ever since sin entered into the world with Adam and Eve, that that fellowship that they had from the beginning was broken. And so sometimes you look at it and go, well, well, why doesn't God fix that? Well, actually, the whole Old Testament is about God going to fix that. But it's not just a future sense. Now, it's completed in the life of Jesus when Jesus dies on the cross and rises again, and suddenly we can now be Uh, in that same type of relationship where we now have the Holy Spirit inside of us. But the rest of kind of what you're going to experience in Exodus, Numbers, um, sorry, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is all about God going, you cannot approach me, but I'm going to make a way, I'm going to come down to you. And so that's the tabernacle, that's the temples, that's the sacrificial system that he gives, is even though God is completely separate, completely holy, that he is the standard, and we can't even understand that standard, he says, I'm going to make a way so that we can still be in communion, so that we can still be in relationship together. God is going to come down and be with us. In fact, that's exactly what we see. Come down to the burning bush. Come down to the mountain. Come down the tabernacle. Come down the temple. There's a word that's uh, translated in Isaiah that we've called Emmanuel, which means what? God comes down. 
And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion, is this isn't about us doing enough to get to God. It's God recognizing, or I guess we recognizing, that we can't do anything to get to God, but he has to initiate and come down to us. And so God comes down. He reveals himself to Moses. Moses, who was a murderer. Moses, who tried to take matters into his own hand and do it on his own timing. Moses, who was rejected by his people, who was rejected by the people that brought him up, and now who is living as a foreigner, as an alien in a foreign land. And yet God is about to use this man, Moses, more mightily than anyone in the Old Testament ever was. Not because he was worthy, but because God was divinely at work in his sovereign power. Here's the thing, friends. Remember, Moses is 80 years old when he goes back to Egypt to accomplish the purposes that God set for him. So uh, admittedly, he lived an extra long life, uh, miraculously. But let's say he's two-thirds, of, through, th- he's two-thirds through his life with only a third left. So however, maybe you think you're going to live to 75 or 80 years old, and you kind of put yourself at this point, and you go, man, I've, I've accomplished a lot, or I've done a lot, or I've, I've worked hard, but now it's time for me to relax. I think Scripture's calling us to something different, isn't it? God going, I have sovereign purposes and plans for you from this day until the last day. And maybe, maybe you've only come to faith in these last moments of your life and kind of on the timeline, you're, you're kind of in that twilight years. Well, great, if God can do what God did in Moses, then can't God do something crazy through you? Isn't God's sovereignty and his divine hand over you the same that it was over Moses? How are we going to move forward? How are we going to respond to God's call? Are we going to go, you know what, I would, but I don't have those skills, or I don't have the time, or I don't have the energy? Or are we going to say, God, what do you want me to do? How are you going to uniquely equip me for this season of life, this season of ministry, this task that you have called me to do, not because I'm capable, but because you are. The calling of Moses is meant to be in this stark reality to us that God didn't call Moses because of Moses. God called Moses because of God. So God can call you, and God is calling you. Now what that all looks like and what the specifics of all of those things, I am not smart enough to say, and I don't have that answer. But what I do know is as we read through Scripture, we see that God picks people not because of their merit, but because of God. And then God works mightily through them. And so we started this morning by Phil talking about the financial picture, but I also want to talk about the volunteer picture because the classic slogan of 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people I think is a very unbiblical representation of what the church is called to. And so I don't know every area and every ministry and everything that's going on, and so this is not me kind of standing over going, I know that you, and sorry, I shouldn't point, random people are not involved in certain areas, and you should be. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you are part of Bamp Park Church, then God has called you to purpose and meaning. So I want you to go home and I want you to pray and and simply say, God, where would you have me 
work. We're going to look at Moses' response next week, like I said, and I hope that we come back with hearts prepared to not make excuses and not tell God all the reasons why he shouldn't pick us for a certain purpose, but why we should go, okay, God, what you have for me, I will step out and I will do it in faith. There's another slogan that many hands make what? The more we can work together as a church, the more empowered, the more strengthened, the more excited, the less burnt out, the less stressed out, it's only going to benefit our church family. And if it benefits the church family, who does that benefit? Our community, and what are we called to do? Bring this good news to our first community, then beyond, and then beyond. The story of Moses and the story of us are very similar in a lot of ways, and maybe we don't see that. But hopefully after today, we can see it in a new light. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truths in, in Scripture that, that this isn't just a story of narration uh, for us to learn historical facts. But this is historical fact to show to us who you are and how you work. God, may we humbly come before you and ask how you would, ask, how you would call us to live, what you would call us to do, how we would steward well all the things, not, not just our finances, not just our abilities, our time, our devotion, our care and concern for one another. Would we steward all these things well because we want to honor you with how we live? And so God, my prayer is that as we go home from here, that each family some point this week would sit down and would have a conversation together. How can we honor God? How can we do what he's calling us to do? And may we step out in faith, believing that you will equip us to the tasks and the purposes for which you've called us. God, thank you that you don't pick us because of us, but you pick us because of you. Go with us this week. Help us to see things in a totally new light. We love you. All that you do, we're just amazed by. Go with us today now. Amen.